uh, Gospel of John, chapter 18, starting at verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. That is God's word. Morning, everyone. Morning, and it's lovely to be with you again. Probably to, uh, I think this is my last week, so uh, thank you. But uh, before we leave, start, let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you and embrace you as our Lord and Saviour. You are the almighty God, the one who has reached out to us, the one who has spoken to us, the one who loves us. And as we turn to your word, we ask, Father, help us. Please open it up to us. Please reveal things, things that you want us to know, to learn, to understand, to be. We pray, uh, and I would pray that I, you would preserve me from error. In all these things, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, today's sermon is titled One Man for All. One Man for All. We're in a familiar place, you might remember, the Garden of Gethsemane. And John's focus is quite special, as it normally is with John. The other Gospels record details of some struggle here, but that's actually not John's concern. He has an emphasis which he wants us to get, and it comes in verse 4. Going out of my passage, but back to verse 4, chapter 18. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him. John wants us to see that Jesus is in full control. He is the one from eternity, that nothing takes him by surprise, not his arrest, not Judas's betrayal, not Peter's denial, which is coming. Everything works out according to the foreknowledge and plan of God. In one sense, Jesus makes sure that this arrest happens, his arrest happens. He is in control. Very important for John here at this scene. John is in control. Uh, God, Jesus is in control. The very human title of Jesus of Nazareth is also united with the divine name of I am. You might remember that from the Old Testament. That God declared I am who I am. I am. I'm the great I am. I, will be. I am who I was. I am today and who I will always be the God of eternity. In answer to the question that Jesus was asked in verse 5, we are looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replies, I am. And it's, we translate that, I am he, because the he is in the original Greek. If you want to understand that, you can, Richard's here, he can explain that to you. Again, in verse 6 and verse 7, the divine name is repeated when Jesus said, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. And in verse 7, he again he asked them, who is it you want? 
Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. Let me translate that, I am he. Isaiah 42 and 43 is the great I am is the only almighty God, the one who controls history as Lord of all. At this announcement in verse 6, everyone hearing it falls to the ground. That's a familiar thing from when so many people had met, when they were met God face to face, they fall to the ground. Who is Jesus is the great question here, and the answer is I am. He is the God come in the person of Jesus, the perfect harmony of God and man together. He is two natures in one. And John is saying, do you see, this is God here. This is the Lord of glory here. This is the divine I am, God incarnate, and nothing takes him by surprise. There are three other, there's another occurrence where there are three times something happens in this passage, which we're not reading, and it's Peter's denial. Peter's denial is simply in the Greek, and again, ask Richard because uh, Greek is lost on me. It says, I am not. Literally, it says, not I am. John wants us to see this contrast between Jesus and Peter. And that contrast just highlights who Jesus is, Lord of all, the great I am. Enough, enough of the context of our passage for the day. Our first point is the soldiers and force in verses 12 and 13. The detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him to Annas who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Isaiah 53, verse 3, which we read, uh, which is a passage you can put almost on every, <laughs> on every New Testament gospel reading. This is the truth. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Or verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. There is great force sent to get Jesus. A detachment of soldiers comes. And the question is why? Why would such great force be used? It's totally disproportionate. Jesus is bound. His hands are tied. And he's taken to Annas and then to Caiaphas. Why the great force to someone who has done nothing to bring that on? Why the violence? One sense, this is exactly our world. This is how power works. The Taliban are sweeping across Afghanistan as we speak, which we, our hands, heads shaken. We shiver. Violence, 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 violence. Our world is violent. The Romans were violent. If they saw or they thought there was disruption, they crushed it. And the Jewish officials have linked arms here with the Romans and they've orchestrated this arrest. 
They can't do anything on their own, the Jewish officials. They've made sure that the Romans have been very alarmed about what Jesus is doing. As we said, when the Romans sensed disruption and a threat, they crushed it. Jesus faces the cruel barbarity of our world. And the great news is he has overcome. No one objects to what's happening to Jesus in this scene. The Jewish officials are in on the act, but maybe something more is even at play here. For our second point is Annas and Caiaphas. In verse 13, Annas and Caiaphas are mentioned. It's something that John actually has mentioned more than any other gospel writer. They bound him and brought him first to Annas in verse 13, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. The high priests are mentioned here. Caiaphas is the current high priest, and that changes from time to time. And his father-in-law is, the, is one of the previous high priests, Annas. But he's still very influential. Annas's sons will provide many high priests, even after Caiaphas, his son-in-law. But here they show who they are. They have alliances. They are in league with the Roman authorities. They can't do their own dirty work. And the Jewish people suspected them and didn't trust them because of that. For the office of high priest is actually being held by imposters. If we go back to 1 Kings 2, Solomon, from about 970 BC, something like that, had designated the family line of Zadok to be the high priests. But Antiochus IV Epiphanes, which is a great name, which Richard can tell us all about, I don't know, maybe Carl, I have no idea. The Seleucid, uh, I can never say that, Seleucid king of Syria <clears throat> began to persecute the Jews. In 175, he deposed the last high priest, Ananias II, who was in the line that Solomon had established. Antiochus placed Ananias' brother on the throne, but then when things didn't go his way he, or he liked, he had him murdered. His son, Ananias III, fled Jerusalem and set up, would you believe, a new temple in Egypt. And there he acted as high priest. And that temple actually continued worshipping as a high priest and conducting sacrifices until 73 AD. The high priests of Jerusalem that we find here, Annas and Caiaphas, are usurpers of a dignity which belonged to someone else. The office of high priest has been degraded to the level of a political position. So as John tells his readers about this, they know that background. And so here they find that the Lord of all heaven, the great I am, our eternal high priest, is here to claim the office. Jesus 
our true high priest of a heavenly temple. We might remember Hebrews 8. We have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Jesus, our high priest, is here in a face-to-face confrontation with Caiaphas and Annas, who are imposters. They represent all things that fail. Human religion failed. What can they do to him, these false high priests? They look to have all the power. But what John wants us to see and know, they have nothing. They are nothing. Despite what they do, they get nowhere with Jesus. He is in control. They order abuse of Jesus, but Jesus' truthfulness cannot be answered. In the interaction with Peter, when he answers, I am not, he answers untruthfully. And he does so in fear for what was happening. The contrast here is stark. It will be. Jesus, the great I am, answers, and his answers are unchallenged. He answers truthfully, and he's not coward. He answers truthfully because his word is truth. For that truth is actually even found in Caiaphas's mouth. One man died for the people, verse 14. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. John reminds us of what Caiaphas has said back in John chapter 11, verse 49. As we said, Caiaphas is a character that John is actually interested in. He's interested in who Caiaphas is, his office, not Caiaphas himself. Back in 49, he says, Caiaphas was the high priest that year. He spoke up. You know nothing at all. You don't realize it's better for you that one man died for the people than that the whole nation perish. Caiaphas, the imposter, who is a political important appointment, he's in league with the Romans. He is not true Israel. But in Jesus, God's True Israel, God's son, is here. Jesus clashes here with Caiaphas and he emerges victorious. The one who is honoured, glorified by the Father, rises to to the top because of his greatness and who he is. Jesus, the great I am, has come to claim this office and to claim his people. He will lead them in true worship. He is the true high priest of the heavenly temple. He is the true one here to say. And Jesus is ready to drink the cup of suffering. From Isaiah 51, 22, that Old Testament metaphor. It's the cup which was symbolic of the wrath of God. 
It's a wrath that is righteously delivered against all humankind. It's a wrath against Israel and for usurpers and impostors. For instead of being God's people, Israel is full of injustice, violence, despair, and worse of all, their religious leaders make sure they actually make it hard for people to find their Lord and God. Jesus takes the cup, the cup of God's wrath, and he drains it to its very last dregs. Jesus would take the unmitigated wrath of God, that wrath against all sin, against all humanity, but not his. Verse 50, uh, chapter 6, verse 6 out of chapter 53 of Isaiah. Isaiah, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus will go to the very end, and he will drink the last dregs of that cup. It's a cup his father has given to him, and he is in control as he takes that curse upon himself. The fake high priest, Caiaphas, is accidentally right. One of the great ironies here in John, and what he loves to point out, one man died for the people, our Saviour, Jesus. Verse 11 of chapter 53 in Isaiah, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. The God-man, perfect in life, perfect in his relationship as he walks with his father day in, day out, the one alone who could die in our place that needed to die that we might be saved. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. The great God, the great I am, the great high priest, the one who is in control of all, mighty I am, the one man for all has come. John's overwhelming focus in this passage, in this whole book, <laughs> this wonderful gospel, is pointing us, of course, to who Jesus is, to Jesus, the great I am, the one who has come to rescue, who drank the bitter cup to the end, which was a line from a song I used to like. He is absolutely true, true Israel, full of truth. His word is true, that he is the faithful son who triumphed over brutality, imposters, and our greatest enemy death. Hebrews 9 tells us Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here. <clears throat> he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Our God, our high priest, our saviour, our Lord, one man for all, that we might know life and have it 
to the full. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we worship you and thank you, our God who is in control. We praise you, our great Saviour and Lord, who has delivered us from death to life, to righteousness and truth. Father, you are truth. Our Lord Jesus' word is truth. Thank you that by your spirit we are part of your people, that your people is not limited to a geographical place or an inheritance, but has actually gone throughout the world, this message, as you gathered your people. And we rejoice that, Father, we are here. We know you because you first loved us. You knew us before all creation. We sit in your hands, we glorify your name, and we rejoice, rejoice in your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.